Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I want to extend a super special invitation. November 8th through the 11th, right here in Boston, Massachusetts, we're hosting Inbound 2016. It is our event where we bring together thousands of marketing and sales professionals from around the globe to come to one spot, share all the latest and greatest in terms of tactics, strategies, best practices, so we can all learn from each other. Over 250 sessions, some amazing keynotes, including Alec Baldwin, Anna Kendrick. It's going to be great. I have even better news for you. As a Growth Show listener, you get a free community pass to Inbound 2016. Just go to inbound.com to register and use the code PODCAST. That's capital P-O-D-C-A-S-T. We hope to see you at Inbound. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. I will teach you to be rich. No, seriously. That's the promise that Ramit Saiti put forward 12 years ago in a student-launched blog at Stanford. And while he may regret the name a bit today, no one can question the following that his blog, his subsequent best-selling book, and all of his spin-off projects have amassed. Today we're going to hear from Ramit about all of it, along with some of the great substantial advice that he's come to be known for. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. I'd love it if you'd start off by just bringing us back to when this was a side project for you during your time at Stanford. What was going through your head? What prompted it? All of that. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, I can't believe it's been 12 years uh, since I've been writing this teeny little blog that started from a dorm room. And I remember back in college, I had uh, taken some of my scholarship money, invested it in the stock market. That's and, unique. Well, I thought I was a real, you know, I thought I was a real genius. And uh, that's what everybody was doing in 1999 and 2000. Just put, put $1,000 in the stock market and you'll make 10000 tomorrow, right? Everybody wins. Sure. And uh, that turned out not to be true. I lost half of my first scholarship check, and that was kind of a wake-up call that uh, I probably should learn how money works. <laughs> so, I, so here I am in school. I'm studying human behavior, technology, and psychology. And at the same time, I was learning about money on my own. I was reading a bunch of personal finance books and magazines and TV shows. And at a certain point, I kind of started to get it. I started to understand how to invest. Um, I had done some investing with my own money, and I started to learn how it really worked. And it was that moment, if you remember that book, The Emperor Has No Clothes, yeah. where you kind of look around and you realize, this is not true. And most of the advice out there for money is not really good advice. And probably all of us have existed in an industry, whether it be online marketing or whatever, fitness, where most of the advice is noise and it's minutia. And that was what was happening with money. Um, for example, if you've ever heard an expert tell you to cut back on lattes. Right. It, Several I mean, times. What's your, what's your first reaction? Your eyes are in the back of your head rolling. Yeah. And, and guess what? That advice doesn't even really make sense. Because $3 a day is sort of irrelevant in the grand scheme. What most people won't tell you is it would be better to focus on the five or ten big wins in life. Um, negotiate your salary. Invest early. 
earn more, et cetera, et cetera. And you kind of have to ask yourself why. And I learned that most personal finance experts don't talk about earning more because they actually don't know how. So there I am in school. I decided to teach my friends and my classmates like a one-hour class on money, very informal. Everybody said, sounds awesome. And nobody showed up. Mm. And eventually I decided this isn't working. And I started a blog. And that was the genesis of IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com. So, okay, so there's so much in there I want to dig into. Uh, The first is this sort of aversion to just bad BS advice that's out there. And, you know, you're, you got stung, right? Like you, you spent half of your scholarship money on the stock market, probably on some bad advice. And then your reaction is, is not to never listen to anybody again. Your reaction is to go into the same kind of business um, of giving other people advice. So how do you safeguard yourself against becoming one of those, uh, you know, uh, bad forms of advice? Great, great question. Um, Spoken like someone who's experienced some bad advice, by the way. Um, (laughs) I think the, the real simple answer is you test it. And here's a great example. If you think about um, any personal finance book, uh, for the people listening, you probably never read a money book. That's okay. I'm not going to blame you. Most of them are not very good. And just play along and imagine if you went to a bookstore or you bought some book on money, you open up the first chapter. What is it going to tell you to do? Any guesses? Save. So, yeah, tell you to save, or it'll tell you, all right. Step number one, let's track all of our spending. Mm. And you know what a person does? They look at it, they start flipping through the rest of the pages, and they just quietly put that book right back on the shelf. Because who the hell wants to track their money only to find out that they already know they've been spending on all kinds of stuff they probably shouldn't be, and then feel bad about themselves? See, you would only know that if you had tested it. But if, if you pick up any personal finance book, 99% of them start with that in chapter one. Right. Um, we learn that. So I learned that because I do a lot of testing. Um, in fact, we collect hundreds of thousands of data points every month now for our business. Um, back then, I was just interviewing friends and I was testing it with blog readers. And nobody really cares about how much what they spent money on. They they don't. You want them to care, but they don't. And instead, what people want to know is like, how do I how do I stop paying fees for stuff I don't need to? How do I make my money go where it's supposed to go? And then how do I get on with life? Yeah. So. So in my book, chapter one is about credit cards, and it shows you how to beat the credit card companies at their game. It even gives you specific phone numbers, um, specific words to use when you call them up. Read this script off, and you will get your fees waived. Um, That's not an accident. That's based on testing, and I think that's how all of us can make sure we're getting good advice and giving good advice. Yeah, it seems to me like the fact that you started with a blog allowed you to do some of that testing and also allowed you to sort of figure out what were those needle-specific topics uh, that we're going to draw people in because you get that more instant feedback. It's all about testing. I mean, the blog continues to be a laboratory um, for ideas and testing, and we do lots and lots of experiments. At any given time, we're running multiple experiments. Some are rapid A-B tests. Uh, some are years-long longitudinal studies, but we're always testing things um, to make sure we're giving the best advice versus, you know, let me sit in my room and concoct some idea and then write a book on that. Now, was there a moment when you were building the blog and building this sort of collection of content where you realized that you needed to branch out and take this project on full time? Yeah, um, there were there were a few things that <laughs> that made me realize there was a potential. We have this dream that we start a business and open the doors and it's just flooded with customers. Yeah, and and, and you know what's funny? The press kind of perpetuates this, but what they don't really tell you is that that's not how it works. And even if you have a 
blockbuster day, usually a week later it's back to normal levels. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I learned was in the first six months of writing my blog, um, basically traffic was low. I didn't know how to get traffic. Um, nobody was really reading it. And if you look, there are almost no comments for the first six months. But then I got like one comment here, two comments there. That was a big motivator. Um, and, and I think that finding out what's going to motivate you in the early days, that's great. Another thing that kind of opened my eyes was the first time I ever charged for something. And that was another pivotal moment in the business. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that, because that's a big decision, this idea that you're going to put something out with a price tag attached. Well, you know, what Silicon Valley has taught us is that you should never charge for anything, right? Because that's evil. Right. And uh, if you just make it up in volume, you can give everything away for free. And listen, I think there are some massive businesses that were formed around that. But as you and I and everybody listening to this knows, there's some distinctions to be made. Um, If you are raising venture capital and you're raising substantial amounts, um, you can do a free business and then you can, whatever your business model is, ads, freemium, etc., I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, um, it's become very scary to sell something because you think people are going to call you all kinds of names. They're going to say, well, that guy gives it to me for free. Why should I do that? And I fell victim to all of those things. Hmm. Um, I wrote my blog for free for three years, did not put a single ad on it, didn't make a cent. In fact, I was losing money because I was paying for all you know, hosting and this and that. Right. And part of it was I didn't want people to think that I had started this just to make a buck. I never did. I started it when I was in college because I just had something that I thought the world needed to hear. Well, two or three years into it, I decided that I wanted to try as an experiment selling something. And this is uh, 2006. Nobody really, it wasn't too big to sell content online back then. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to try this. So I put together an ebook. I had it professionally illustrated. And... Um, I decided to sell it for $4.95 just to see what would happen. Uh, I did not set up a payment fulfillment system. Um, I literally had it and I was going to email it once I got a PayPal notification because I thought that nobody would really buy it. Uh, and by the way, the, the way that I described it in my quote sales page, which was just a blog post, I was really defensive. Um, I was like, you know, I decided to charge for this, even though you could probably find a lot of stuff for free. You're talking them of, out of it as you're, as you're yeah, trying to pitch them? Yeah, it's so horrible. It's like rookie 101, everything you shouldn't do. And, um, and I have to tell you why, because that was one of the scariest days of business. I was afraid that people would call me a sellout. I was afraid that people would call, uh, would ascribe all these sinister intentions to me. And the worst part was that's actually exactly what happened. Um, the comments on that site, uh, until then, which were almost universally positive, people really liked the site. They said, uh, oh, I will teach Ramit to be rich. Oh, so this was all a ruse. Right. And the great irony, I mean, it's that sinking feeling in your stomach, right? And, and the great irony was I was only charging $4.95. Like, the money was irrelevant to me. Um, the second interesting part was that there were these commenters who said, this site has jumped the shark. But on the other hand, there were a lot of people who were quietly buying. And I think within a few months, I had sold like something like 1,000 copies, um, which to me was mind-blowing. I never expected to sell more than 50 total. Yeah. What that told me was that there was something going on here. There were a lot of people in public who were saying these comments, but privately, there were other people buying. And I went to look at the metrics. Those people were way more engaged um, way more complimentary, and actually they were more likely to follow my advice. 
So how, so, let me stop you there for a second, because that's really interesting. I mean, how do you go from that moment of panic that, oh, everybody hates me now, to looking past that fear and starting to see the patterns that lie beneath it and see it as a, a filter as opposed to um, something that is, you know, that is negative uh, overall? It was probably the hardest three years of my career. And it really took three years. It took years. three years. Yeah, because I had to erase 25 years of cultural programming that selling is bad, that making money is bad, that you should give away everything for free and it's better to have people like you than to have three people dislike you. It was very painful. And you have to remember that I had spent those three years of my blog talking about personal finance. Um, now remember, I never told, my philosophy has never been cut back on everything. My philosophy, in fact, since day one has been spend extravagantly on the things you love as long as you cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. Right. Well, what happens is that in this world, particularly in America, the most predominant type of money advice is the type that tells you to cut back on everything. And again, why is that? Because most financial experts, all they know is how to cut back. And so my readers who I thought would come along on the journey, some of them did and some of them are with me to this day, but a lot of them were, beneath it all, they were focused on frugality. And um, when I charged for something that sort of pierced that and they realized, hey, I don't I don't want to pay for anything. And in fact, I think if anyone's charging, they're trying to pull one over me. Yeah, that's interesting. So it took me three years to get past that. I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, my parents are immigrants from India. Um, I mean, I was basically born and bred to negotiate, okay? I love it. I negotiate. I, I love it. I remember that when we were kids, we're a very middle-class family, and we didn't, I mean, we didn't pay for anything extravagant, really. Um, we certainly didn't go on any big vacations, you know, we would go see our family, things like that. But I remember one time we went to a gym and I asked my parents, who, who are those people? And there were these people just sitting behind a glass office. They were the personal trainers. I didn't know that at the time. And the kind of feeling was like, oh, they're just there to take, take your money. Hmm. And that's cultural programming, right? Now I know that um, if you can afford it, that a personal trainer can be an amazing investment in your health. But I think for a lot of us, we're raised to think that if someone's trying to charge us money, Maybe they're trying to pull one over us. And if I can get a leather jacket for $50 at Old Navy, why would I pay 500 or, God forbid, 2000 for something like that? That must be a scam. Um, in reality, a lot of our competitors, we charge 100 times what they charge. And our customers love it. So that takes a lot of work on pricing, psychology, and delivering value that um, I wasn't ready for at the time. Yeah, there's a there's a black and white kind of defensiveness there around any money spent is bad versus, yeah. you know, it's funny, you mentioned this a little bit before that somebody was giving you a hard time about the name in one of the comments that you got, um, the name I will teach you to be rich. And it's almost as if the name is should really be I will teach you to be rich in the things that matter. Oh, God, I mean, I wish I, I, I don't know if I'd pick that same name today, to tell you the truth. Um, I was sober when I picked that name as a college kid. I, it wasn't like I was partying and I picked this personal finance name. Could have but, been sleepless. Um, could have been sleepless. Yeah, there you Thank you. But you know what? I've always said from day one, um, rich is what you define it to be. And for a lot of people, they want to, it, it could be money. It could be being able to travel to see your family. It could be starting a scholarship fund, whatever it may be. Um, but be, living a rich life is about what you want, which also has enabled our business to go into multiple new domains. Yeah. So we actually don't talk about personal finance very much anymore. 
Um, I wrote a book uh, which did pretty well, and I said what I had to say about money. And since then, we've actually we now have over 20 products in multiple different domains, ranging from entrepreneurship, how to start a business, and everything from customer research to copywriting to sales, all of freelancing, all the way to finding a dream job, negotiating salary, even learning how to cook. So all different parts of a rich life. And I think if you are starting a business or you are growing your business, um, you can remember that your customers, if you have a loyal customer base, they will want to come with you on a journey. And that journey doesn't just stop when you sell them a product. If you're growing and developing and showing them where life can take them, whether you have a SaaS product or whether you have an information product or whatever, a fashion business, um, your customers can be loyal with you for years and years and years. Yes, you sort of seep into their consciousness a little bit as as a first step for um, persuasion. I'd love to hear other thoughts on, because you seem to, I'll be honest, have sort of mastered the art of persuasion. You're, You're very good at pulling people in and getting them to listen to you. When you're talking with other people, what tips do you have for our listeners on how to do something similar? Um, in terms of persuading potential people to engage with them or maybe join their product. Is that, is that the question? Yeah, exactly. So tell me your tips for the art of persuasion. Okay. Um, well, we have, a, we have a person who works with us, and um, they're a product developer. That's a position on our team that helps develop some of our products. And I was asking them, if you were to go up to the average person and you were to say, what do you like to do for fun? Okay. What, what would your answers be? Just give me the top three things you like to do for fun. Hmm. What do you think? Um, walk my dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, watch Netflix. Yes. And read. Okay, good answer. Very exciting life. No, that, I love it. Um, I told this, per- this person's um, first answer was uh, self-development. Okay. And then I think the second answer was like working on learning a language and there was something else. I said, listen, you are a freak of nature. <laughs> I was like, going to say, they're already cool. showing me up. That's not, I know, it makes us all feel like, oh my God, what am I doing with my day? I just watched Narcos on Netflix. <laughs> that um, is a very good show. So good. <laughs> I, I told this person that it's for persuasion and just frankly for good social relationships, it's really important to know all different levels of people. So to tell you the truth, the average person is not going to say self-development in their top three. Okay, The average person is almost always going to say travel. Hmm. Whether or not they like travel. If you ask me that, I would say travel. You know why? Because it's a politically correct answer. It's a safe answer. Yeah. So my first suggestion to them was to make sure that you are reading magazines and books that normal people read. Um, What are those magazines? Um, Cosmo, Business Week, Us Weekly. Um, By the way, I'm not disparaging those at all. I think they are awesome magazines. I think they kind of get stigmatized by people. Yeah. But they shouldn't be. Uh, Some of the most sophisticated thinkers on persuasion, copywriting, like Eugene Schwartz, Um, He wrote this incredibly complex and dense book on copywriting. He was very opportunistic. Um, He used to go and watch like dollar matinees just to learn what was going on in ordinary culture. Meanwhile, he had a penthouse on Park Avenue. So uh, that's number one, is being able to articulate what every different type of person would say when you ask them these questions. And then I think number two is really being great with storytelling. Uh, if you can tell an amazing story, that is an enviable skill that will take you very, very far in life. And by the way, you can get good at telling stories. There are a lot of ways you can do it, but being able to tell them verbally, being able to write them on a page, that has allowed us to really grow our business. And I just think it's more fun anyway. 
I'm just curious myself. Are you, do you walk around with a notebook? Are you, because it seems like you're constantly learning and you're constantly testing. And how are you getting all these ideas down? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh, first of all, I'm reading a real diverse set of places. Um, like I said, all those magazines, books, um, I'm trying to learn from different industries. So for example, I think the fashion and retail industry is super interesting. Uh, just to give you an example, I have a friend who works in it. And she t- uh, told me that they only order like 50 uh like sweatshirts, even though they could sell, you know, 300. And I was like, what? Why would you do that? Like, you're leaving so much revenue on the table. And she said, well, the whole business model for the fashion industry is get them in, get them out, and keep them coming back every week. Hmm. That's very opposite of, say, the pharmaceutical industry. So uh, I'm trying to get exposed to these different things. And then I'm keeping a list. I have something called a story toolbox. It's just a simple Google Doc where I track all these interesting stories I hear and stories I learn and things I read. And then when I'm ready to write, uh, I can pull up that story toolbox and I have like hundreds of stories ready to go and I can work from that. So what is the piece of, you know, the place where most new entrepreneurs stumble most often? Is, is it pricing? Is it a mixture of things like you found with personal finance? What are you hearing again and again? Two things. Number one, they get stuck on the idea. Uh, either they can't find an idea because they have too many ideas, or more commonly, they pick the wrong idea. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a really, really subtle point. Um, you, could, you could have two people who both decide to go after the same market. Let's say personal finance. Um, but if you get it wrong, you could have the best design, the best product, the best this and that. If the market is wrong, the game is over before you even started. And that's number one. And I can give you an example from my own business of a mistake I made. Um, the second thing that I see with beginning entrepreneurs is they focus on minutia. So they're coming here saying, somebody told me I need to get a Facebook page. Somebody told me I need to be on Twitter. I need to do webinars, SEO, SEM. Those are tools, right? Those are tactics or channels. You don't need to do all or sometimes any of those things. What is most important is finding a market that is delighted to pay and then giving them a product that's so good that they are actually happy to join you as a customer. Um, So we actually discourage people from doing a lot of these random tactics um, and instead focus on doing two or three things and doing them really well. Yeah, so that actually lends itself pretty well to my next question, which was you talked about the latte advice as being the most common kind of bad advice that individual savers get. is there something similar on the business side? Yeah, follow your passion. Mm. Spending a little bit of time to do some research to try to invalidate your idea instead of trying to just validate it. But actually, we try to poke holes in our idea and, and red team it. In other words, find out where the weaknesses are. Um, we would rather kill an idea you know, early into it than spend two years or three years or four years working on an idea that is already doomed. Can I ask you about any particular ideas in your own history that you've invalidated? Oh my God, I have so many. Um, so in our product development, most of the ideas never make it past initial research, um, but a, a few, because they're not good. <laughs> but um, some of them have slipped through and they always made me want to pull my hair out. So, okay, I'll give you a couple of them. One was when I was uh, switching companies, I had to find my own health insurance and it was very painful. Like I had to make all these calls and I, like I don't know what orthopedic, doctor to look at. I don't know any of this stuff. So I started like, if I have this pain, then other people must have this pain. So we spent something like a year building a detailed product on how to find health insurance. 
And we even beta tested it. It was actually a paid beta test. And um, people ran through it and everyone was like, oh my God, this is crazy. I hate health insurance. I would do anything to solve this problem. And as soon as we tested it, we realized, no, people actually don't really care about this. They claim they do, but they don't really care about it. Not enough to pay. And so we killed that program um, before we ever went to launch. Was it painful? Uh, um, it was painful, but in retrospect, I'm really glad we didn't take it to market because it would have cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars in mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, here's another one we did, which we actually launched, and it was a mistake. We had a product called Scrooge Strategy. And this was a product which was four tips per month on how to save money. Every tip was to have, um, it would have saved you more than the cost of the, the product, which was like eight bucks a month. It was a very low end product. Um, I did this because I wanted to learn about continuity or subscription products, but I thought it was a great product. We had like awesome, super detailed tips on like saving on prescription drugs and travel, all kinds of stuff you would normally not find. Um, turns out that you can have the best product on saving money, but if your market doesn't want to pay to save money, you are doomed. Right. And we had, you know, several hundred customers at some given time, but what we learned was that like it shouldn't be that hard. If you have product market fit, if you know your customers and they have a need, it shouldn't be like pushing a huge rock up a hill. Um, people should actually slide in and say like, yes. In fact, they should even say, please take my money. Please. Right. That's when you know you have a great product. Um, in this case, we eventually just shut it down because we were like, this, this amount of revenue compared to the pain of selling this thing, it's just not worth it. And that's why we, in retrospect, we should never have launched that program. Makes sense. All right. So the last question I have for you, Ramit, is a personal one, uh, which is you have provided a lot of advice to people over the years, tested advice that you've tested yourself. As you look forward, what's something that you're personally working on right now? Um, probably one of, one of the areas that has informed my business more than anything, which is kind of surprising, is um, the process of learning about fitness and learning how to how you know to sculpt your body how to change it into what you want it to look like and feel like and all that stuff um, that was very, very counterintuitive to me uh, i you know i thought if i read yet another business book that's going to teach me everything i need to know mm -hmm. um, but actually like subtle things working out at the gym for example if you start lifting heavier um, it's going to be the the smallest weakness in your body is going to become exposed at the higher levels and that's true in business as well. If you start advancing in your career, if, for example, you don't have the best social skills, uh, once you become a VP, that's going to be very, very evident. Um, that's kind of surprising to me. So I would say that the fitness industry is extremely interesting to all of us here. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I look forward to seeing more um, and sharing more about fitness. All right. Well, thank you so much for me for spending the time with us. It's been really interesting to hear your take on all of this. So I, I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. By the way, if anyone's curious, we put together a little guide for everyone listening. It's at IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com slash growth show. Oh, that's awesome. So one more time for the listeners, that's IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com slash growth show. It's yep. tailored just for you. Thanks so much. Thank you. This November, the Growth Show team will be at Inbound 2016. 
The lineup includes big names like Anna Kendrick, Tennessee Coates, Michael Strahan, and Alec Baldwin. And that's just to name a few. For more information and tickets, go to inbound.com. I really hope to see you there.